This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Tansi, bonjour. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the President. I'm your host, Brad Regeer from Winnipeg, the Treaty 1 territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission report published in 2015 contained 94 calls to action, things that needed to be done in order for reconciliation to take place. In this episode, we're going to discuss call to action number 27, which is aimed at making sure practicing lawyers receive cultural competency training. There have been a lot of calls for this kind of training in law firms the past few years, as the idea that law firms were hiring more diverse candidates but not making them feel included gained traction. The Law Society of British Columbia in 2019 decided to make cultural competency training mandatory. Earlier this year, the Alberta Law Society did the same. But what does cultural competence mean in the Indigenous context? My guests this episode are both very familiar with this question. Jennifer David of Chapleau Cree First Nation is a communicator, planner, and facilitator. She's a senior consultant with Envision Insight Group and a member of the board there. The CBA collaborated with Envision on The Path, a five-module series that increases awareness about the legacy of the Indian residential school system. The CBA has been offering The Path to members since May 2020, and the Alberta Law Society has made it mandatory. My second guest is Michael McDonald QC, a member of the Peguis First Nation here in Manitoba and co-chair of the BC Law Society's Truth and Reconciliation Committee that decided in 2019 to make cultural competency training mandatory for lawyers in the province. He's also an active member of the CBA's Aboriginal Law Section and a former director of the Indigenous Bar Association. Jennifer, welcome to our podcast, Conversations with the President. Hello, Ani Wache, Jennifer David, and Tisna Kossin. I'm Inanu from Omishkego, so that I said that uh, my name is Jennifer David. I'm from the Shaplo Cree First Nation in Treaty 9 territory in northeastern Ontario, and I always acknowledge the land where I come from. But I'm now joining you here. Uh, I've been a longtime visitor in Ottawa, where I acknowledge that I am on the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation. So hello. Thanks for joining us. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Well, good morning. Uh, thanks for, for having me on. And uh, I'm uh, speaking to you from the uh, unceded ancestral and unsurrendered territories of the Okanagan people in Sunnywell. I was trying to be Sunny Okanagan. And uh, I'm a member of the Peguis First Nation. And my mother hails from the Norway House Cree Nation. So I'm a Manitoban. So, uh, yeah, good morning. Thanks for joining us. So first, we're going to explore the idea of cultural competency. And uh, Jennifer, I'm going to turn to you. What does that term cultural competency mean to you? Okay, thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about it, because I don't actually like that term. I know that it's scattered throughout the TRC's calls to action, but I, I, I kind of like to deconstruct that word a little bit, because when you say, first of all, when you say cultural competency, it implies that someone needs to be well-versed in another person's culture, uh, when in fact what we, what we should be talking about is intercultural. And I don't actually like the word competency either because, again, that word competency is like, you know, 
I can be a competent cook or I can be a competent mechanic, but are you really competent in, you know, building relationships with Indigenous peoples? So we, we've sort of tossed around different words here at, at Envision where we, we do offer a number of different courses and programs and workshops. And so we, we've sort of landed on intercultural intelligence. So Indigenous intercultural intelligence because what we're trying to do is is help people in building their relationships so that they are more intelligent in their intercultural relationships and so I, I i just don't really like this term cultural competency and that's why i use this other phrase instead well thanks for that that's uh that's very interesting Mike, what, what do you think when you hear the term? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I come at it as a solicitor. You know, when we draft agreements as a commercial lawyer, we generate definitions in agreements sometimes, especially the, the larger ones. We tend to get sometimes focused on, well, it's very important to know exactly what a, what a word or a phrase means. I agree that it's not the perfect phrase. I've heard cultural humility. I love the, the concept of Indigenous uh, intercultural intelligence. At the end of the day, it's really about what is the, what is the, the learning or the material or the, the training or the interaction going to result in. That's, uh, that's, for me, what I prefer to focus on, having some experience working with our BC's Law Society and our TR's Truth and Reconciliation Working Group and mandating cultural competency and also doing the same thing within our firm and then just working within the practice area for all these years. At the end of the day, it's it's getting the material, the information across and in a way that results in some enhanced intelligence, like Jennifer's saying, and competency. So, Michael, that's, that's interesting because law societies seem to be agreeing that the idea that what the TRC says, cultural competency training, is important. And, and I know that the Alberta or the Law Society of Alberta has recently made it mandatory for its members to take the path, mm-hmm. which the CBA started offering last May. And then last year, you, Michael, were, were part of the decision to make cultural competency training mandatory for lawyers and BC. Can you tell me how the Law Society of BC came to that decision? Well, first, I wasn't part of the decision. I'm not a bencher. I wasn't a bencher last year, and it's ultimately a decision of the benchers of the Law Society. Having said that, it's kind of a long-winded story, but as a, uh, as a Cree, I, I'm a born storyteller, so I'll, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and, I'll try and um, uh, paraphrase the story that I've told many times. Uh, when when it was first, um, uh, when Call to Action 27 first came out, and um, it was a call to the Federation of Law Societies to mandate Indigenous cultural competency for lawyers across Canada. Now, the law or the interaction between the law and the administration of justice and the legal profession inter- intersect with so many other calls to action. But the law society wanted to, to jump in it. And, and uh, so without any... Uh, consultation or discussion with Indigenous lawyers or Indigenous people, they said, okay, well, let's, let's get at this. And so their, their education subcommittee said, we'll make, uh, if someone takes a couple of uh, courses in Aboriginal law, then that'll count towards their two hours of mandatory professional ethics requirement. And that was their, that was how they were going to meet that. And they invited myself 
I was on the board of the Indigenous Bar Association at the time, and I was the treasurer and, and another person who was part of this um, the CBA's uh, Aboriginal um, Lawyers Network. We were invited to a benchers meeting to sit and listen, and they weren't asked. They didn't ask us to speak to it. They passed the resolution, and then they want. Then they had a break for coffee and asked me to, and thought we were going to pat them on the back. And it was quite the contrary. And I said, well, well, for starters, the resolution doesn't meet it, the purpose and of what that call to action is. And secondly, isn't this how we got here in the first place, where not Indigenous people thought something was good and they didn't ask or consider what Indigenous people uh, thought or, or asked for their perspective? You know, and maybe you're being well-meaning about it, but um, this is kind of how we get into trouble when we don't communicate, talk, you know, and then the phrase began. And so I was very upset. And the incoming president at the time, David Crosser, and I spoke briefly and I said, well, this is ridiculous. So in probably a first time in, in the history of the law society, perhaps in the same day, a resolution of the benches was passed. And subsequently to that, in the same meeting, that same resolution was withdrawn. And, uh, and, 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 um, and I refused to go back in the room. And fortunately, one of my clients chiefs phoned and we were just speaking, but they, they were all assuming that McDonald was so upset. They refused to go back in the room. And so I came back in the room and they're already debating the withdrawal of the, uh, of the resolution. And so I was able to speak to it and be the good cop and say, you know, <laughs> um, and then suddenly, suddenly we developed a, a truth and reconciliation uh, planning group or, and eventually it became a working group, a kind of constant working group. And they developed a, a, a reconciliation action plan, not the best document in the world, but I was keen to get it, things moving. And then subsequently I was the co-chair of uh, that group last year. And then we, we, at the time we thought that, well, the easiest thing here, the lowest hanging fruit here is probably this mandatory cultural competency, but my goodness, it took over a year to get through and it was difficult, but it happened. And we're excited that, that it, it did happen. It's not perfect, but it's a, it's a start in the process of making better lawyers, actually, in my view. Thanks for sharing that with us. You know, there's, there's people who are going to be out there listening to this podcast, you know, going, I'm an educated person. I, I know my history. I know Indigenous peoples in Canada have been poorly treated by the institutions in this country. What more do they need to know? Jennifer, can I put this one to you? <laughs> what more do they need to know? That's an interesting question because we all, we've always learned, right, that history is written by the victors. So when you say, what do we need to know? Is that really the question we should be asking? Uh, you know, because every Canadian has so much to learn about uh, Indigenous history. And when I was creating uh, the PATH, our, our cultural awareness courses, I was appalled by how little I knew. You know, I, again, I'm from Northern Ontario. I could tell you, you know, Cree stories and I could tell you about our relationship with the Anishinaabe and I could tell you, you know, about the lakes and rivers in, in my, that territory. But I, I knew almost nothing about the Inuit. I knew nothing about, for example, the history of Métis script on the prairies. So I think it's not just, uh, you know, uh, non-Indigenous people, but all of us 
us, it behooves us to, to learn more about our own history in this country and not just, you know, Canada's two founding nations and English and French. What is the sort of Indigenous underpinnings of this country? And so these are things we all should have learned in high school. And I am seeing in some provinces that the curriculum is being updated. And, and I have two teenagers and I can tell you that my teenagers know now more about sort of Indigenous history and stories than I certainly did when I was a teenager. So there are there are stories that need to be told and we need to hear the Indigenous perspectives of those stories and that history so that we can see some, some balance. Um, so when we talk about what do they need to know, I would just say that I think it's it, it's Indigenous people that should have the opportunity to speak up and say, here's what we think that Canadians need to know, as opposed to in the past, it was always non-Indigenous people who got to decide, here's what you need to know. <laughs> so so where do we start this? I mean, I, I, like I know the, the sort of the focus of this podcast is on on the legal profession, but where do we where do we start this training? Grade school, high school? Mike. Oh boy, that's a big question. Oh my. Yeah, give me the hard one. <laughs> <laughs> you got the low-hanging fruit before, so yeah. I don't know. Okay. I, I think the, the best place to start is is by uh, reading carefully and unpacking the calls to action and the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Um, because we, we got it, uh, uh, back up by saying that I spent some time on the board of uh, World Vision Canada, and they work focus, you know, on other countries on development and uh, social and economic development. So that sponsor your child for thirty some dollars a month actually actually turns into some sort of development project. And, and what I learned from some of those people having been in Africa a couple of times is is they have this phrase in development called "It takes a long time to get into trouble." And it takes a long time to get out. Mm. So if you ask yourself the question, well, how did we get in as Canadians? How did we get into this mess? There's issues around Aboriginal rights, land claims, treaties. Um, and then there's incarceration rates and whatnot. And well, the important thing is to figure out, well, how we got here and what is the context? And so I think that's where you, where you start is, is you start to learn what that truth is. You can't get to reconciliation without starting with the truth. So the truth telling is, I think that's, that needs to be integrated throughout our society. So of course our education system, but we need to, if you look at the calls to action, we need to integrate that training throughout the range of professions, institutions, governments, uh, businesses. If the calls to action permeate or society. So I would say, of course, the education system, but also the professions and the institution. The other thing that when, what comes to mind, Brad, when you say, where do we start? I think about who are the decision makers that would start this? And certainly it's not me. And certainly it's not a younger generation that maybe have that enhanced knowledge that would be incentivized to do it. In a lot of cases, it's not Indigenous people. So who are these decision makers? Typically, they're older, and typically they don't have the knowledge that they need to have, and they don't know what they don't know. If you have the opportunity, 
as a professional to build those relationships and sit down and talk to those people that are have that, that influence, then you should jump at it and take these advantages. It's those individual relationships with those people that are influencers, decision makers. Um, and all the more reason and excitement for my excitement about your, uh, your, you being in that seat, Mr. Regeer, uh, very, very exciting. So, um, so when we say, when you ask the question, where do we start? You know, we can take that, that big picture issue about, well, how do we influence knowledge and understanding our culture? Big question. But at the end of the day, um, it's who's going to make those decisions. Mm. And we got to find out who those people are and when we meet them and get to know them and they give us an opportunity to have our opinions expressed, we should take. Jennifer, I'd love to have your perspective on this too. I'm not a lawyer, so I, I can't speak to, you know, the, the ways that lawyers are, are trained, but certainly I think the earlier the better in terms of where to start. So, you know, in grade school and in high school, again, I, I have two teenagers, and why is it that they always have to study Shakespeare? Why aren't they studying, you know, Richard Wagamese's Indian Horse? I mean, if you want to talk about emotions and history and, you know, the beauty of the English language. So we really need to think not just in telling, uh, you know, Indigenous stories, but weaving Indigenous stories into, you know, history, you know, Indigenous veterans and how they were treated, you know, during World War II, or there's lots of ways. And we just need to integrate those stories into uh, education starting at a young age so that kids who grow up think, oh, yeah, right, I know that perspective, I've heard that perspective. And then Indigenous people will see themselves in this history and this story and this education that we that we have for each other. I would also say that, you know, when it comes to adults and we're talking about, you know, learning, uh, and again, I, I'm not keen on this word training either because, you know, it's like dogs are trained, but, you know, people actually are learning. So when we're talking about adults and learning, it really does start with cultural awareness. And again, awareness is really just the very, the first tiny step. Culture awareness is essentially saying boy I'm now aware of how much I didn't know right we're aware of sort of cultural differences but to get along this path of reconciliation we've got to move beyond that cultural awareness which is you know where the competency comes in where the cultural humility the cultural intelligence right it's one thing to learn about and understand our history but what does that actually mean how does that impact the way that you are now going to do things differently based on what you know so it can't just stay there in that knowledge oh that's history isn't that interesting right and then we're done it has to be this continuum and again it starts with that cultural awareness but it, it also starts at the, the level with kids in schools and overhauling the curriculum so that indigenous voices and stories are included so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you both a question. And I'll probably get in trouble with it afterwards, but I'm used to that. They can edit it out, can't they? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm going to want them to, but um, <laughs> how, do you, how do you respond when you hear calls in, an, in, a, you know, in a certain province that they don't want to teach about the history of residential schools because it's too traumatic for children? How do you, what, do you, what do you say to that? Well, do we stop teaching about the Holocaust? No. 
And so, I mean, why is it any different? It's different because this is not our history, our country, Anglo-Saxon, white ancestors that we're talking about. But, you know, we can look to a parallel in Germany. And again, I have some friends who are German and, you know, they learn in school. They, they, had, they have reckonings about what their sort of past was. And we, we have to do the same thing in Canada. And there are many children's books written about residential school from residential school survivors and Indigenous people. So we can't say that the topic is something that, you know, children can't handle. I have read some wonderful, sensitive books about residential school that's aimed at children. So again, that's to me, an excuse when you say, you know, you don't want to teach people because it's too sensitive. That just tells me that we have an ugly history, but if we don't acknowledge it, how are we going to not repeat it if we don't know what it was? Mike, any thoughts on this? Mm. My first thought is, is my experience of being in Rwanda just three and a half years after the genocide and visiting World Vision projects that were primarily relief. We got to meet some very wonderful people from Rwanda. So I was in a store looking at their local art and I was asking for an opinion about, well, what, what's the most important message um, if I'm going to buy some art that I should take back with me that, that will remind, remind me of my experience in my time or encourage me to talk to other people about my experience in Rwanda. And their, the, the response was immediate and strong and it was, please do not let people forget. Um, please remind people that this mm-hmm. happened to us. And, and that's really important. That's a strong message. And, and so it, I echo what Jennifer is saying. Like we have to tell those horrific stories um, about the genocide there or the Holocaust or the treatment of Indigenous peoples in Canada. Um, Those stories, that's part of who we are. That's something that we all share. And it's it's in a very important part of of our lives. There's a good way to say it. With educators, a lot more experience than me would know how to communicate this to uh, children at different ages. Thank you both for that. So to both of you, you you do the cultural awareness. How do you know how do you know you've lit that spark? You've made that, that, that touch point, that connection. I'm not sure I want to say that you've had success, but I, uh, hopefully you know what I'm talking about. How do you know you've, what you've set out to do, you've, 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 you've made that connection with people? I'll just jump at this one right away because it's something I actually thought about this morning, shockingly. I, I made a connection between mind, feet, and heart. If you communicate the imperative intellectually as to why this information is important, then you actually have the opportunity to to pass on the information. And as a result of that, you can create incentives for taking that information and, and, and doing good things with that information, you know, for your profession or for your relationships or, or for yourself or for your business or economically or politically, then that moves people's feet. But as they do that, they engage with Indigenous people and they start developing those relationships and they go, wow, this is so cool. I really enjoy meeting these people and getting to know them and building these relationships. And then suddenly you're capturing people's hearts. And so I think it moves in that direction. You know, whether that's the right thing, that's just what I 
what I've seen happen. Yeah, I really like the way that you describe that. I love that because I was going to say something similar, but maybe not quite so eloquently that I, I love I love it when I, it's like that light bulb goes off when people are hearing the kinds of stories that I'm telling and they just, people just say, I had no idea. And then it, it makes them want to change, change their own behavior. It changes the way they see the world around them. It, it makes them want to change and improve and strengthen sort of the relationships that they have. It makes them think twice about the structures that they're in, in their own company or organization or department department and try to see them with a different kind of lens and it inspires people to want to be better do better and uh, that's that that really gets me going gets me and gets me up in the morning and wanting to do these courses because I, I see that it can make a difference if people are serious and really want to engage in reconciliation then sort of doing cultural awareness it can really light that that spark. We're not the, the intention and I've found, and you've probably found this too, Mike, you know, when people come into either come into the room or, or, or start uh, on a course like this, a lot of people are kind of skeptical because they're, they're like, I don't, I don't need somebody to judge me or my ancestors and what we did, you know, let's not talk about the past, but then people take the course and they realize, you know, we're not here to sort of shame people, but we are here to inform people so that they understand and another part of history that they never knew anything about and not necessarily through their own fault, right? We're not, we're not trying to put this sort of guilt trip on people. We really want to just say, listen, give us a chance to tell our stories, our perspectives, and, and you know, perhaps that will open your eyes uh, to where we are today and that we can work together for where we can go tomorrow. So, that sort of takes me to my next question in that um, yeah, I think I know my podcast obviously focusing on the legal profession. So I'll, maybe I'll phrase it that way, but certainly if you, if you want to take it outside of that, uh, uh, that that's great too. But what, what do indigenous lawyers uh, need their non-indigenous colleagues to know? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no more low hanging fruit, Mike. Oh my goodness. Give me the hard ones. Well, one of the things that I, you know, hands up to Ardeth Wacom, one of my colleagues uh, in the profession and uh, also an indigenous lawyer of quite some renown in British Columbia, um, coined the phrase as we worked our way through our time or efforts with the Law Society in British Columbia is. Nothing, nothing uh, about us without us. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and, uh, and that really stuck and it resonated and say, and it, and it forced, and it forced people to say, oh, okay, I guess we have to do this together. Then the question for the law society is, okay, well, who are these people that we need to do this with? And quickly, um, became apparent it was Indigenous lawyers. So suddenly, Indigenous lawyers were asked for their views. Now, we've got a lot of work to do as a law society, I think, and certainly as a committee, to build and create more opportunities for more Indigenous lawyers to come forward and, and, and talk about things. Indigenous lawyers have to be educated twice. They have to learn someone else's uh, legal system 
and then and then do that translation and interpretation of how it may impact on their own worldviews on law and uh, legal theory. So the other the other one is there's still racism that goes on and discrimination that, that still goes on within within the profession, and that rears its ugly head in a lot of cases, particularly in and around the courtroom. The typical examples where Indigenous lawyers robed up, wearing a suit, got his lawyer's briefcase, walking in court, he walks in the, in the law library and is asked to leave, and, and it shows credentials, and is still asked to leave in any event. You know, uh, plenty of examples like that. Um, but there's also plenty of other examples of racism or prejudice that occurs from lawyers that have practiced Indigenous law for decades through the con- this concept of paternalism where other people are used to having a lot of influence over Indigenous leaders and Indigenous people and telling them what they think is best for them, uh, as opposed to building capacity and taking instructions from your client and, and letting the client be the client. Most Indigenous lawyers will tell you that the vast majority of the um, racism or discrimination they've experienced has been from lawyers who practice Aboriginal law who are not Indigenous, which might be surprising, but that if you actually ask them, they will tell you that. There's a lot of things that, that lawyers would, the Indigenous lawyers would love to say if given the opportunity. Jennifer, do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, again, I'm not not really a, a lawyer, but the the question about you know what would your you know indigenous colleagues say to non-indigenous colleagues? I think you know it a- applies not just in, in the legal profession, but but anyone who's sort of indigenous trying to say to their colleagues what what you need to know. I think at the bottom of it, it's if you if you have the humility to actually ask to, to be told what you need to know. People don't like to be told, but for a long time, it's been, you know, the mainstream Canadian society that's got to tell non-Indigenous and Indigenous people about Indigenous people. And now it's time for us to listen again to those Indigenous voices. So really non-Indigenous lawyers or people in business or anyone wanting to, to go on this journey, starting with cultural awareness, is to at least say, okay, I'm going to listen to what you think I need to know, right? Instead of, again, coming up with, like you say, that self-righteousness or that sort of arrogance saying, well, I should be able to decide what I need to know and I don't need to know that. Well, how did you come to that decision and why do you get to now decide, right? Whether you you, you do or don't need to know that about Indigenous people, right? So it, it's really got to be a, a paradigm shift to get actually get people to to have the at least a sort of a humility to say you know what I, I don't know things I don't know what I don't know so help me understand and sometimes we get stuck with with people who are just not not yet ready or willing to go there just looking at the systems like looking at Canada's legal system look at our justice system look at the education system or the healthcare system it's all built on this. Um, you know, British, colonial, Anglo-Saxon, Western sort of structure. And we've all know and have experienced how those systems are built to either discriminate against or disenfranchise or in in other ways uh, put people 
or keep indigenous people in their place. Uh, and that place, like you say, is inferior to the rest. And, and until all Canadians sort of can see that, like the emperor's new, clo- like new clothing, whatever that story is, like if, until they, our eyes are sort of open to understand the whole structures, we'll never really understand sort of this what systemic racism is or how the work that we're doing in cultural awareness and cultural competency and all the calls to action from the TRC are really trying to, to sort of rebuild, have us rethink all these sort of systems. That's huge. That's huge amount of work. And it's hard for us to see that, but at the end of the day, that's really what, you know, what we need to keep in mind that, that we're, we're really trying to sort of rethink a lot of these sort of structures that have been in place for hundreds of years. Right. That's right. I, um, and unfortunately, we are running out of time, but I probably have 20 to 30 questions more for each of you. <laughs> um, uh, I, I really want to thank you both for taking part in this episode. Uh, I'm always astounded at how little I know and how much more I learn when I do these things. Uh, you know, I, just coming out of this, even the different terms, Indigenous Intercultural Intelligence, Mike, you said cultural humility, cultural awareness. Um, You know, I think those are terms I'm going to start using uh, now. And and certainly that quote, uh, uh, nothing about us without us. I'm uh, that's, that's going up on the wall of my office. That's a great Um, one. So I, I, I again, really want to thank you both for, uh, for joining me here today. Uh, This is a, this has been a great session. So. Miigwech for the opportunity. Thank you. I appreciate it. I learned a lot too. And thank you both. In this episode, I've been talking with Jennifer David of the Shaplow Cree First Nation, a senior consultant with Envision Insight Group, and Michael McDonald QC of the Peguas First Nation, and a member of the Law Society of British Columbia's Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Thank you for listening. We want to hear your stories about your experience as an Indigenous person with a legal profession, as a practitioner, as a student, or as an academic. Let us know on Twitter at at CBA underscore news, on Facebook, and on Instagram at at Canadian Bar Association. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juriste Branché podcast. <laughs>